Amen. Thank you, Troy. What a precious promise that the God of the universe, the one who knows our every thought, the one who knows everything about us, hears us when we call. Because we know ourselves, don't we? But he loves us. And he cares for us. And he comforts us. And he hears us when we call. Please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, if you will. 1 John chapter 5. By now you've unwrapped your gifts and likely had a chance to play with them or wear them or use them or do something with them at this point. In fact, you probably even rank them in order, like your favorite gift to your least favorite gift, to what you want to return and to what you want to re-gift the first chance you get. Some of you have even begun to write your thank you notes. You are on top of it. Way to go. Good job. And while gifts are great, right, we all love giving and receiving gifts. It's a wonderful thing. We do need to understand the limited value of gifts. And we get really excited about them for a period of time. I mean, they're just like, oh, this is the best. I love it. It's wonderful. And then after a period of time, what happens? It's ho-hum, right? It's... Uh, Let's just do a little survey. How many of you can remember two gifts that you received last year? I bet you have to think about it. I bet you have to think about it. And some of you can't even remember at this point. Because at some point, they just become ho-hum. I mean, in the grand scheme, friends, Xbox games and new outfits and new cars... They don't mean a whole lot. And yes, some gifts are more memorable and more meaningful than other gifts, but at the end of the day, they're earthly treasures and they will fade away. You know what matters in life? It's life that matters. During this holiday season, uh, I'm aware of and connected to five different families who have lost loved ones. Five different families. And statistics will say that during this time of year, there are more natural deaths than in any other time of year. Don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. But I do know this. Those people who pass away, Christmas gifts mean nothing to them. They mean nothing to them. They hold no influence over their lives. They hold no value in their lives. Why? But whether your death is sudden or whether it's prolonged, you can't take the gift with you. And frankly, everyone, not everyone, but many of us are thinking about New Year's resolutions right now. What are our New Year's resolutions going to be? And let me just say, all these things that we think about, and as important as they are, you know, losing 30 or 35 pounds or exercising more, eating healthier, crossing some more things off of your bucket list, at the end of the day, they don't matter. Why? Because... Dead people don't think about things. There's only one thing that matters to dead people. Eternal life. Eternal life. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-5, through the Apostle John emphasizes faith. It's faith in the Son of God that leads to victory. It is our victory in the Son of God, the one who has overcome all things, that brings about Uh, life, eternal life. In verses 11 and 12, John will say that life, eternal life, depends on having the Son. 
So in verses 6 through 12, John is describing the one in whom we believe, and he is building his case for the apostolic message, for the truth of Christianity. The one, Jesus Christ, in whom our faith resides and belongs. For in him there is life. To have the Son is to have life. So as we work our way through this passage this morning, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-12, through 12, we're going to ask three questions of the text. But before we get there, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word together? 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-12. through 12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Lord, as we focus our attention now on your word. As we humble ourselves before you, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that your spirit would give us insight into what is a difficult passage. And we pray that your spirit would change us. We pray, Father, that this morning you would birth faith, saving faith in someone who is far from you. And this morning we pray that you would strengthen the faith of those who are following after you. We pray that you do these things for your glory and that your name would resound in this room and to the ends of the earth and that you would use your people to testify to your greatness and to the salvation that is found only in and through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, clearly this is not an easy passage to interpret. Now, my assumption is this. When John spoke of the water and the blood, the original readers would have understood exactly what he was talking about. They would have clued in because there was probably this this controversy that was taking place and they would have just understood what was happening or what he was referring to specifically. Now, in our day, it's not quite as easy. We don't have, like, specifically, we know for sure this is exactly it. There's a lot of guesses out there, and I'm going to point to what I believe is the correct interpretation of this text. But we have to understand, this is a very difficult text. Secondly, we have to understand that we cannot understand this passage apart from the Gnostic controversy that was invading the church. This Gnostic philosophy that said that all physical matter is evil. And only thing that is good or only thing that is pure is what is immaterial, what is spiritual. See, so one of the things about the Bible, it's different from every other religious book out there, is that the Bible is a, uh, a, a historic faith. 
It's historicity. We can understand what happened and we can verify what happened through historical events, through what's taking place. We don't see this in other, quote, religious writings and religious books. It's verifiable. And we know that this Gnostic philosophy was making its way through the church. Gnostics denied that the man Jesus is the same as the Messiah of God, that is, the chosen one, the Christ of God. They claim that the Messiah, the spirit of the Messiah, the spirit of the Christ, came upon the man, Jesus, at his baptism, but then left Jesus at his crucifixion. It was not God the Son who died on the cross. It was merely Jesus the man. So in light of this, for a Gnostic, salvation didn't depend on blood atonement. It depended on a special knowledge that was given to some. And if you had this special knowledge, then you were moved into the realm of salvation. You were moved into a realm where sin could no longer touch you and sin could no longer contaminate you because it was outside of you. But this is not what John the Apostle taught. And this is not what Scripture teaches. And this is not what Jesus himself claimed. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the God-man from conception. Fully God and fully man. And the Bible teaches that salvation comes through faith in his, Jesus' atoning work on the cross. So as we make our way through this passage, we have to remember this context. We have to remember this controversy that was going on, that was invading the church, and that was uh, bringing deception and causing people to be deceived in the church. So the first question we're going to look at this morning is this. Who is the Son of God? Who is the Son of God? Now, uh, after John tells us that the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, G- John now will immediately move to identify who the Son of God is. And he tells us that Jesus, the one who is born of Mary, is the Son of God. In fact, John says, it is the one who came. Who is the Son of God? He is the one who came. This is clearly a reference to the incarnation. This is a reference to who Jesus is. Is God in the flesh, right? The eternal word of God, the one who is with the Father, the one who who was one with the Father, the one through whom all things were created. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. This is Christmas. This is the story of the advent of our God, Jesus Christ, who comes. The one who came. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Speaking of Jesus' divine origin, John the Baptist said, He who comes from above is greater than I. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, He is greater than I. Similarly, New Testament scholar Robert Yarbrough argues that when John refers to Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus Christ the God of salvation, the anointed one, the chosen one, he's emphasizing the unity of the person of Christ, the person of Jesus, his humanity and his deity. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the God man. He is, as John writes, the one who came by water. 
He is the one who came by water. Now, there are several theories as to what John is talking about here. What does he mean by he came by water? Is he talking about his natural birth here? What is he talking about? I think, I think it's best to consider this in terms of Jesus' baptism. In other words, I believe when John writes that he is the one who came by water, that this is a reference to Jesus' baptism. A reference to Jesus' baptism, right? In Matthew chapter 3... Verses 13 through 17, we read of this baptism. Let me read it for you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus now is identifying with the people that he came to save in his baptism. He didn't come to be baptized because he needed to repent of sin. Why? Because he was sinless. There was no sin to repent of. But to fulfill, as Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill the biblical patterns and prophecies about the Messiah. For at his baptism, Jesus is publicly identified as the Son of God by the voice of the Father. When the skies open up and the Father says, as we read in other areas, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God, to prove who Jesus is, descends and shows This is the one. This is him. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that give credence to what the Gnostics said? I mean, the Gnostics said, yeah, the Spirit of God adopted Jesus at his baptism. If we, if we think this de- depends on his baptism or point to his baptism that he came by water, then, then really we're just throwing a scent to what the Gnostics had to say. But no, we're not. Why? Because remember, John chapter 1, as As John records, John the Baptist is baptizing and from afar he sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, this is a reference to the Messiah. And this is before the baptism. This is a reference to the one, to the person in whom salvation is found. Where where Jesus will die on a cross as the Lamb of God. As payment For our sin. So in this baptism, John is pointing us to the divine life of Jesus. But it's not just the water. It's also the blood. In fact, if we look again at verse 6, the way that John constructs this verse, it's almost as if he knew that the Gnostics would, would try to hold on to that reference to the water and the baptism. And that's why he emphasizes the blood. Look at verse 6 again. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. By the water and the blood. And again, there are many theories as to what John means when he wrote blood here, what he meant when he wrote blood. But what makes most sense, I believe, is to understand this as a reference to the crucifixion. 
as a, as a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. But Jesus' crucifixion marks the end of his public ministry. And if water points to the, the divine life of Jesus, certainly the blood then, the crucifixion, points to the divine work of Jesus. John is declaring that no mere mortal man died on the cross that day. It wasn't just some person who died on the cross. It was the very Son of God. Now just think about this. How darkness symbolizes the judgment of God. Think back to the Exodus when, when God sends Moses to uh, free his people from slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And you remember that plague of darkness. Darkness comes over the land. This is a evidence of God's judgment on the sin of the people. And friends, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, and the darkness covers the earth. What does it symbolize? It symbolizes God's judgment on sin. As the God-man is dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the skies are darkened, symbolizing God's judgment. Jesus, the God-man, bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus, the God-man, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. So John here is emphasizing that eternal life depends on the God-man dying in our place. John is emphasizing that eternal life depends on the God-man dying in our place. As John Stott notes, if Jesus is not fully God and fully man, then our Christian faith is undermined. If God, if Jesus, excuse me, is not fully God and fully man, then our Christian faith is undermined. For if he is not God, then he is not sinless and he doesn't qualify to serve as uh, the substitute for us. And if he is not fully man, then he is not qualified to serve as the substitute for a person, a human being. But he is the God man, the sinless man, the one who died in the place of sinners so that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. I want you to listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice how... Paul uses the term Christ, the anointed one, pointing us to the Messiah in place of the name Jesus, because they are one and the same. And it is in Jesus, the Christ, that God does not count our trespasses against us because Jesus took our place. Because there is life in him. 
God makes us new. He reconciles us to himself through Christ. This is a reference to the man, Jesus. Not some eternal spirit that adopted Jesus at his baptism and then departed Jesus at the crucifixion. John wants us to see that eternal life depends on the God-man, on Jesus Christ. So the second question, how do we know that what we believe is true? How do we know that what we believe is true? Well, 1 John points us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is testifying to who Jesus is. Notice at verse 7, for there are three Excuse me, the end of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, friends, this is exactly what John, excuse me, what Jesus said as John records in John chapter 15 uh, that the Spirit would do. That the Spirit, His ministry would be to point to, would be to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. John 15, verse 26. That the Spirit is testifying, that the Spirit of God is testifying to the truthfulness, to the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God's Spirit plays an indispensable role in enlightening the sinner to who Jesus is. That the Spirit of God plays an indispensable role in pointing to and giving understanding to the sinner as to the identity of Jesus Christ. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Who are those who are perishing? Those who are proud in their sin. Those who remain in disbelief about the person of Jesus Christ. Those who have failed to place their hope and their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. They are those who are perishing. But it's foolishness to perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Who are those who are being saved? But those who have understood, those who have seen, those who have believed who Jesus is. Those who have put their hope and their trust in the person of Christ and what he has accomplished. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul continues to write that only the Spirit of God can give us understanding into the person of Jesus. And only the Spirit of God can persuade us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So how do we know that what we believe is true? Because of the testimony and the work of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, notice in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So the apostle now returns to the water, to the baptism. He returns to the blood, to the crucifixion. He adds them to the list of witnesses that testify to the person of Jesus Christ that testify to the work of Jesus Christ. The testimony of the Spirit, the water, and the blood is consistent. Now, why is this a big deal? Why does he want to point us to this? Well, friends, I believe that, it's, that it is a reference to the Old Testament. We're not to just receive the testimony of one witness, but to the testimony of multiple. This is how things are confirmed. So John is building the case for the truthfulness of Christianity. He's building the case for the truthfulness of salvation and the blood atonement through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And he's calling us to the witnesses here. Now we should note, in verses 7 and 8, these verses look different in the King James Version and the New King James Version. In short, the reason for this is that the King James Version, it's a great translation, but in, in this moment here, it, there's, a, there's a difference. The King James Version did not translate from the oldest manuscript of evidence available. In fact, there's a lot of documented uh, material out there that shows that this statement, the changes that were made, and you can go look it up later with how the changes are, were, were added by a man named Erasmus, a scribe named Erasmus, and it was meant to bolster the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, while the King James Version, what it says is theologically accurate, the manuscript evidence suggests that this was not part of the original inspired version, but a later edition, an editorial insert. And friends, this shouldn't concern us. Actually, what this should do is bolster our confidence in the veracity of the Word of God. Why? Because the manuscript evidence for the Scripture, for the Old Testament and the New Testament, far outweighs any manuscript evidence that we have for any ancient writing. And no book, no book has gone as much, gone through as much textual criticism as the Bible as the Word of God. And we can be confident that this is the Word of God. Even the fact that your Bible will note the fact that your translation says this, but it doesn't say something in the most, uh, the oldest manuscripts, is evidence, friends, that we can rely on the Word of God. It holds up. Now lastly, John is making a lesser to greater argument. Look at verse 9, if you will. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Now, I want you to think about this. When we watch court TV or we're involved with a trial sitting on a jury and we receive the testimony of someone else. If it's a reputable person, we will believe that testimony. We see how things line up and how it's consistent with one another. And we believe, we receive the testimony. And John is saying, if we, if we listen to other people, then of course we should believe the testimony of God who does not lie, who is perfect in every way. And His testimony is greater than all. God's testimony is greater than man's and is true. This is what John is telling us here. Now think about this, friends. In our world today, we will believe just about anything that someone tells us. We'll believe just about anything that someone tells us. That's why we buy products that we buy, because we believe the person who's trying to sell those products. Especially if it fits our agenda. Or especially if it fits our preconceived notions. We want to believe it. And John is saying, believe this, friends. Believe it. This is the testimony of God. (coughs) How is it the testimony of God? What does God say at the baptism of Jesus? What does God say at the Mount of Transfiguration? What is God telling us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That this is the Son of God. The Son of God who's been raised in power. And think about this. Oftentimes we think of ourselves as witnessing for Christ. And that is our call, right? We're called to make disciples. But here, John is telling us that God himself is 
testifying. He's the judge of the universe, but here he is now testifying to you that Jesus Christ is his son, the son of God in whom there is salvation. Finally, and by way of application, why should we believe the testimony of God? Why should we believe the testimony of God? Now, here's the key to this whole thing, friends. If we believe the testimony of God, then we have that testimony within us. It becomes our testimony. If we believe the testimony of God, it is within us. It becomes our testimony. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If the testimony is within us, then our lives are hidden with Christ. Friends, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we have eternal life. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God for all that means and put our hope in Him, then we have eternal life. If we have the Son, then we have the Son and everything that the Son stands for. We have everything. We have His righteousness. We have his peace. We have hope. He is our advocate. He is our light. He is our wisdom. Life is found only in the Son of God who conquered death. Our victory is ours only because the Son has gone before us and defeated sin and death forever. Only because he has victory. So, how do we get the Son? Seems like an important question, right? If there is eternal life in the Son and only in the Son, and if we're outside of the Son and we don't have life, how do we get the Son? That's what John's been telling us, that we believe. God is making you an offer. He's saying, believe in the Son. Believe that there is life in the Son. Believe that forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, with myself, as God would say, comes only through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you will put your hope in that, if you will believe that, then you will be saved. So we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves and we recognize that there is life only in the Son. That we can't be good enough to earn salvation. So we humble ourselves and say, God, we've lived for ourselves, but we don't want to do that anymore. We want to live for you. We want, to, we want to follow Jesus, the one in whom there is life. So today, friend, what keeps you from life? What keeps you from experiencing God's grace? Confess your sin. Place your hope in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and be saved. Don't reject the Son. Today, there'll be people who reject the Son because they believe they're good enough on their own. They believe that they're just fine. They try their best and they do a lot of good things for people and their good outweighs their bad and they're just fine. So they will reject the Son. Don't be deceived. 
your wrongs speak against you, and God will not let sin go unpunished. Either Jesus paid your sin debt, or you will pay your sin debt for eternity in hell. Don't reject the Son. There will be some in here who think, God couldn't love me. He doesn't know my name. How could God know my name? He knows everything I've done. How could He love me? How how could Jesus have died for me? I've done all these terrible things. Friend, don't be deceived. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. Don't be deceived. The Bible says, John says, if, if you disbelieve the testament of God, you make him a liar. In other words, what you're saying is, you're saying that you don't either need his salvation or you're beyond the reach of, of his grace. Or you don't believe who Jesus is. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And John says, if you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. But if you have the Son, if you have the Son, then you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you have not eternal life, but eternal death. Is there anything else that matters more than eternal life? Anything? All these things that we value in life, all these things that we run after, all these things that we pursue, friends, at the end of the day, they aren't going to matter. And what matters is eternal life. Stuff, accolades, reputation, wealth, physical appearance. The only question that matters is, do you have life? Do you have eternal life? Do you have the sun? And we're going to close out a year and we're going to enter a new year. And there'll be questions that come to you, end of year things, beginning of year things. But the question that matters most is, do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? And those of you here who don't have the Son, in just a few moments, we're going to have a time of invitation. And if you have questions about what it means to have the Son, to have eternal life, then please come and talk to us. But it's my guess that most people in this room know people who don't have the Son. So will you share with them the good news? Will you share with them the free offer of God that there is life in the Son? May God be gracious as we seek Him. And may God be gracious as He saves souls and as He uses us as part of that process. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for loving us. Thank You for this morning. Thank You that we get to be part of what You're doing. More importantly, thank You that You became part of what's going on in our lives. By Your grace, You saved us, not because we deserved it, because you're a God of love 
and grace and compassion and mercy. So Lord, work now, we pray, in the hearts of your people and draw people to yourself for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing as...